This is Opening Spaces, the podcast about democracy, produced by Democracy International. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Opening Spaces, a podcast about democracy. My name's David Detman. And I'm Evan Smith. And today we're talking to Dan Murphy of Democracy International. Welcome, welcome, Dan. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Dan Murphy is, uh, works here at DI, uh, but has worked in elections uh, around the world, uh, also in the States for many years. He's an expert in kind of uh, both the technical and the more theoretical aspects of why elections matter, and uh, we're really thrilled to have him here. Uh, so we want to start our conversation today by just talking about that question. Why do elections matter? Do they still matter? Uh, and how do they contribute to democracy? Well, uh, thanks a lot, Evan. I mean, I think the first thing to answer your question, yes, elections matter. Um, I, I've made, not just because I've made my career in helping other people vote, um, but I do truly believe that elections are a fundamental part of democracy. And I think that sometimes maybe there's an overemphasis on uh, a democracy being equated with an election. Um, and that's something probably we should be careful of as we think about elections, but absolutely, the ability of citizens to choose their government um, is is a fundamental part of, of any democracy and uh, I believe is a human right. So Dan, you mentioned uh, the importance of uh, elections to democracy. One of the things we like to talk about here at Democracy International is kind of what are the variables that go into evaluating whether a state is democratic or not. DI does work in all sorts of different aspects of democratic development. Um, it seems as though when we talk about democracy, we are largely talking about elections. So before we get into why elections are not kind of enough to evaluate a democracy, can we talk about why elections you know, are a cornerstone of, de of democracy and a cornerstone of evaluating democracy? So let's talk about why they are important, and then we can talk about why they're not enough. There's no question that if you want to talk about a democracy, I mean, even just going back to the word democracy, it means government of the people or by the people. And the only way in a modern society of millions of people to choose collectively the way they're going to be governed is really through elections. Um, you know, you go back to the beginning of democracy in, in ancient Greece, or you even look in you know, the United States, you have kind of vestiges of this that remain in like the, the town meeting in New England, which still exists in certain places. And, and people will show up and actually discuss an issue and then cast a vote openly in front of their friends and neighbors. But the rest of us living in more urban locations or in, in you know, other parts of the country, you see the election and, and the ballot box and an organized electoral process as the only means by which people can actually have a say in choosing their leaders. Uh, but Dan, let me push back a little bit on on, on that. Um, I mean, clearly elections are important, but are they always good? They're very powerful, and and but sometimes that seems not just in the U.S. context, but in the in the you know thinking about your experience around the world, they they can kind of be good, used for good or for ill. Sure, I I think that this is this is actually you know kind of what maybe you're, you're getting at is, is a really important point to make, that I think that we've seen um, in, in recent years particularly, a lot of countries have just sort of seen elections as a box-checking exercise and using elections to prove how democratic they are. 
and taking a process that by many, many measures might not actually be representative of a democratic process or itself might not be independently evaluated as a democratic process, but something that people then turn to and say, well, they had elections. And, and yes, this person was elected or this government was elected. And that's not enough when you look at it. Um, I, I think, you know, sort of the question that was asked was, you know, are, are Obviously, elections are important, and they're a part of a democracy that, that, that I do believe is very, very important. But I think maybe what you're getting at is they're necessary but not sufficient. Um, and, and just because you have an election, and even if you have an election that is a—I want to I stay away from using the word fair, um, because that's a very subjective term. And I think that, you know, throughout the uh, process, the, the sort of professionalization of election observation as, as a kind of discipline— people really hung on to the term free and fair. And I think that we moved away from that, and now we, what we try to use is credible and acceptable. Um, but, you know, so even if a, 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 an election is credible and it's well-organized, it might not be democratic. So can we do a, a, a bit of a deep dive on electoral administration? Uh, you mentioned that elections can be credible but not democratic. Can we just talk about what are the characteristics of a quote-unquote good election? What does a good election look like? Well, that's a really interesting question, and I don't think there's necessarily one answer. I mean, I can certainly, I'm happy, happy to give my opinion on that, which is that there are a number of things that you should look at. Um, number one, you know, turnout is important. Um, you can't necessarily say that 51% turnout is, is a good election, 49% turnout is not. I think that you have to, get, it gets more nuanced than that. But if you have, you know, an 80% participation rate versus a 10% participation rate, you can certainly make a judgment about that process based on those kinds of numbers. You can also look at what kind of access there was to the ballot, whether certain groups of people were disenfranchised maybe uh, either through intimidation or actually through uh, legal requirements that made it more difficult for those individuals to register or those individuals to cast ballots. Um, so access to the polls, aside from participation rates and, and turnout, you have whether or not it was easy for people to access the process whether it was clear to them how to go about the registration process and how to go about casting a ballot. Um, there's also things where, uh, you know, the administration of the election, whether polling places were located centrally, um, whether they were, whether there may have been an opportunity to um, influence the election and the, and the turnout and the participation by putting um, polling places in locations that were more accessible to larger numbers of people or less accessible to certain groups of people. Um, and, and that can be done intentionally. That can also be done by accident. So there's a number of things that you can look at in the way that the election is administered and make a determination as to whether or not uh, an election might be fair. Um, finally, you can talk about the messaging of the candidates and the ability of candidates to get their messages out. Is uh, state media the only way people can get their messages out? Um, is access to information on social media, Facebook and Twitter, is that you know wide enough in the country that those are viable platforms for candidates and parties to use? So if the government in particular is in control of, of the media and doesn't give the opposition any actual chance to have a fair uh, ability to get their message out, then that's another thing that you can sort of look at and, and question the legitimacy of the election overall. So 
in your experience, I mean, what do you see as trends on all those things? Because clearly the rules of the game matter. Who decides all that stuff, you know, all the way from top level kind of like who runs the elections all the way down to where polling places are, are physically located and, and, and how accessible that means they are or the ballot box then becomes to, you know, different parts of the population. Are regimes getting smarter about that? Is Are they getting sloppier? Or, you know, are, are, is election administration getting better or worse overall? And kind of what does that mean? Uh, and maybe there is no top, top level international trend, but kind of what are some things you're seeing um, about how that is changing? Well, I, I definitely think that I'm concerned by a trend of the idea that everyone just has elections and doesn't necessarily care uh, whether they're good or not. I think that, that we've seen more of that lately. I think that there was a resistance maybe 15 or 20 years ago to even having elections in more autocratic regimes, and that's kind of shifted a little bit. And I think that you're seeing more uh, emphasis on the idea that there should be an election and less emphasis on whether that election should be, quote, viewed as good or not. And, and I think that that's... Um, Particularly in the late 1990s, you know, in, in Eastern Europe is a really good example. You had, you know, after the, uh, the Iron Curtain fell and all of that sort of the Cold War was over kind of stuff, there was a lot of push towards elections. And those elections, I think, were more hopeful processes than we're seeing lately. Um, I also think, though, that if you look at the culture of Eastern Europe, there's a real understanding in the Western sense of what democracy is. Um, and then you look more recently at places, at, you know, processes that I've been personally involved in and in, in Afghanistan. Um, in Afghanistan, you didn't have a deep understanding of what Western-style democracy actually is. And so when you throw an election into that, 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 that society, you have more of a difficult time explaining what it should mean and how it should work and that sort of thing. Um, whereas in the Eastern European countries after the fall of the Soviet Union and you know the, the, the kind of end of the Cold War, in Hungary and in the Czech Republic and, and you know those kinds of places, you didn't have to explain to people what Western-style democracy was because they were familiar with it and they wanted it. Um, so then we get into a place now where a lot of societies that don't have a deep understanding of democracy are being encouraged and, and funded by, you know, by the U.S. and the European Union and other, other donors to actually have elections. And I don't want us to say that those societies aren't necessarily ready for that, but I think that the challenges in administering election and, and trying to make sure that people understand the choices that they're making are much, much greater in those situations. Um, I also think that, you know, kind of getting back to answering your question more directly, you look at a context like Egypt. Um, in 2014, we saw an Egyptian election process that wasn't rigged at the ballot box. And, and I, we were, Democracy International did a very extensive observation of that election process. And I think it's fair to say we were very critical of that process because we didn't think it was overall a democratic process. However, on a technical level, those ballot boxes weren't stuffed. The election was organized, in my view, quite well. And among the people that actually voted, the outcome reflected what they wanted. But there was a very small minority of people who were actually allowed to speak. And this process, I didn't view it, and Democracy International's conclusion certainly wasn't that it was democratic, because it was so much tilted towards what the state was looking for, and, and their idea that they had a free election was not something that we agreed with, and that we thought that that election 
checked a box and and there were a lot of people in the international community and within Egypt that wanted to say that Egypt is a democracy and Egypt is moving towards democracy and they wanted to use the outcome of this election as proof of that and I'm pretty skeptical that that proves that. So we call this podcast opening spaces and um, it's not because it's about architecture uh, it's because there seems to be a growing trend of closing political space, what's called in kind of our industry closing political space. And, you know, one of the ways I think Democracy International is viewing our work is almost as a bulwark against closing political space. And I'm kind of going to talk a little bit about what um, Evan mentioned, and that is, uh, do you think that in this increasingly authoritarian world we live in, at least as documented by groups like Freedom House and others, do you think that elections are used, and you've mentioned this before, but are they used as almost window dressing? And is it kind of convenient for us to focus on elections as measures of democracy? Kind of, we're playing into the hands of, uh, of authoritarian regimes because they say, oh, I'll, I'll be a democracy if I have an election. Um, what do you think? I mean, is it is it almost counterproductive to focus so much on elections? Well, this is a question that I've wrestled with in my professional and, you know, sort of in my intellectual, in the way that I view my profession and the way that I view the work that I've done, this I think about a lot. Mm -hmm. Is a bad election better than no election at all is, is kind of a, a question. And, and I don't think there's an answer to that. And personally speaking, I'm ready to say that an election is, is almost always a good thing. But I think the danger is that, you know, the point you're making is that there's a danger that you can use an election sort of to, to, to counteract the narrative that the space is closing. Oh, we gave our citizens the right to vote. Well, did you? I mean, did you really? And, and did you really, as getting back to what I was saying earlier, did you really give people a fair choice? And, and, and was the choice that they made something that they were able to choose and, 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 and was it from a range of options? Or was it, you know, sort of the choice between different kinds of vanilla, um, you know, that sort of thing. I think that there is a real danger that elections could be window dressing um, and, and that we as the international community have to find some way, which we currently I don't think have, to say that this is an election that, you know, should happen and this is an election that shouldn't happen. Um, there is sort of a guiding uh, set of principles called the Declaration of Principles for International Election Observation. And DI is a signatory to that, uh, to that document. And there is, uh, Article 11 talks about whether or not you should observe a process. And, and this is sort of an ongoing debate. And one of the things that Article 11 does is it says sort of both things. It says if this process is so inherently undemocratic that as to be a farce, you, you shouldn't observe it because that lends legitimacy. And then in the very same breath, it sort of says, but, you know, even bad processes should be observed. So I think that really it's not so much that there's a standard, we should be a part of this process or we should not be a part of this process. It's that we should look critically at every process. And whether we're providing technical assistance, we as the international community, not as, you know, any one entity, but whether the international community is providing assistance to this process shouldn't in and of itself be the only measure of whether this is good process. You can provide assistance to a process that in the end doesn't turn out well or didn't actually accomplish democratic aims. Um, but I think, you know, personally speaking, I think that our default should be electoral processes are mostly good and should be encouraged. 
with that said, we have to be very, very careful not to be manipulated and not to be in a situation where we're lending legitimacy somewhere it, should, it doesn't deserve to be. Um, I'm going to bring that back to the U.S. a little bit. And obviously, uh, the biggest election story in the last year, year you know, several years actually, because of our lengthy, lengthy campaign cycles and processes, as was the U.S. presidential election. And kind of it turned out that um, we basically had the biggest difference between the popular vote winner and the electoral college winner we've had in, a, I think, ever, actually. No, I'd ever. have to look at the number. Yeah. yeah, I think it's ever. And clearly, it raises questions about the legitimacy of our own process. Obviously, the electoral college is a very old institution, you know, approaching two centuries that we've used, or actually more than two centuries that we've used it. And so it has a lot of legitimacy from that aspect. But clearly, when the majority of people want one thing to happen and a different thing happens, in most contexts, we would say that is, you know, of questionable legitimacy. So how do we as, I mean, we're based in the U.S., we're American practitioners, you know, how do we grapple with that ourselves? And I don't know if, I mean, you've, you've worked on these, I mean, not electoral college specifically, but you've worked on election issues in the state. So what can we do to make ourselves kind of try to close that legitimacy gap going forward? Well, I've thought about a lot about this recently, too, and, and actually just got back from a lengthy trip abroad, and I spent a lot of time explaining to people how our system works, and, and the Electoral College is um, something that I think we don't consider much. I think that in, in a developed democracy, we don't spend a great deal of time thinking about how our democracy is structured and how the systems that, lend, that, that lead to our elected officials are structured. And the Electoral College is something that we as, as a nation, and certainly myself as somebody who works in elections, I couldn't possibly recommend this to another country. I couldn't suggest to people that this is a good way to do this. But then again, I've never really ever come down on the side of it being a bad way. Um, and I think that that's also because when, you, when you're raised in a democratic system, you accept this as the norm. But I think that the point you made about this, the, the difference between the popular vote and the Electoral College this time is maybe a little bit more striking than it's been in the past. I think that, you know, I actually can't think of the last time Bush-Gore, certainly in 2000, uh, Gore won the popular vote by about half a million votes and, um, and Bush ultimately won the election. I think that that election was so unique and so strange and this whole Florida recount and everything else, and it dragged on so long that people sort of looked at that election differently. And I don't think we're so entirely shocked by the 500,000 vote difference between uh, Gore and Bush. I think that now this is a little bit different. And that there, it has happened in the past, but it's almost like, you know, historical trivia. Like, when was the last time that the president didn't win the, the popular vote? And you sort of think, oh, that must have been 18-something or whatever. And, and so it seems so sort of far away that it wasn't real. And everybody sort of thinks, well, the Electoral College is there and the Electoral College is a thing. But, you know, whoever wins the popular vote usually wins the Electoral College, so we don't have to come up with that that much. But when you look at how striking it is, and this is actually something that I talked a lot about on my recent trip, between the, the vote margins in, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, you have about 82,000 votes separating uh, Trump and Clinton. And she won the popular vote by nearly 3 million votes. So if you look at our system, you have an, an instance where 82,000 people outvoted 3 million people. Um, that has to be something that we as a society need to 
think about. And, and just because the Electoral College is the way that we've always done it, and just that if we require a constitutional amendment, which is a really heavy lift in our political world, uh, doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at this differently. And, and maybe it's time for us to say, wait a minute, this is not where we should be anymore. Um, I also think that you know when people have asked me to defend the Electoral College in the past, I've always done so by explaining that the US is a federal system and that we are a nation of states as well as a nation of individuals. And so the, the, the idea that smaller states have more influence using a system like the Electoral College is something that l lends some at least, I don't know about credibility, but certainly goes a little ways to explaining why we might have this system and, and why certain people would be very attached to it. So I, I don't think that it's got to go or anything like that, but I do think that we should, as a, as a mature democracy, periodically review the systems that we use and, and come up to a place where we're maybe not sure that just because we've done it this way for two centuries is enough and, and, and is, in fact, how this should continue. So that's an interesting point. Um, democracy International is kind of part of this uh, universe of foreign assistance entities that focuses on democracy, human rights, and governance, which means we do a lot of work to, quote-unquote, spread democracy. Uh, we just spent a little bit of time talking about some of the potential crisis of legitimacy in the newly elected administration based on kind of a difference between the popular vote and electoral college. I guess my question is, and it, it may be philosophical, is what business do we have as the United States to spread democracy? I think that I've always been proud to be an American working in this field. Um, I've always been proud of the fact that, you know, we have a democratic tradition and, and you know, I've just identified things that I think are really in need of at least examination, if not reform. But I don't think we ever really shied away from that. Actually, I sort of started in this work in the late 1990s and was actually, you know, working in elections and, and working in development in elections in the, in the 2000 election cycle. And that was one of those times when people sort of, I think, I think the U.S. election system has always had problems. And people sort of didn't realize that. And I think that 2000 put that into context, that even mature democracies have work to do. And I think that, um, you know, I sort of started this with a philosophical idea that I believe that people's right to vote is a human right. And I think that we should be encouraging that. Now, what we should probably do is maybe be a little bit more careful about how we encourage that. And maybe, you know, the electoral systems that we recommend or that we provide advice to a, a country on, on how they might structure uh, their electoral system should probably be more considered and we should spend more time thinking about the context of the specific country and and the sophistication of the the, the voters and the demo, the level of democratic history that that country might have so i think that you know as americans and as anyone of, at all we have there's nothing wrong with us encouraging other people to be democratic as we view it but we have to understand that they might view it differently. And so there should be a discussion and a dialogue and there should be much more attention paid to what would work in their context and what would work in their system rather than just opposing, imp imposing our kind of democracy on another country. Thank you, Dan. This has been Opening Spaces, the podcast about democracy. I'm David Detman. I'm Evan Smith. Thanks for listening.
The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Democracy International.